0: My guest this week is Lynn Cody, a writer and producer whose television credits include Orphan Black, Sensitive Skin, Michael Every Day, Digstown, and the CBC miniseries Unspeakable. She's also a hell of an author, winning the Giller Prize in 2013 for her short story collection Hell Going. Her latest book, Watching You Without Me, arrives in stores today, which gave us an excuse to sit down together. Lynn picked Wait Until Dark the 1967 thriller adapted from the stage play by Frederick Knott, starring Audrey Hepburn as Susie Hendricks, a New Yorker learning to live with her recent loss of vision. Susie is also newly in possession of a great deal of heroin, although she doesn't know it, and that sets her on a collision course with three very unsavory men, played by Alan Arkin, Richard Crenna, and Jack Weston. Just a warning off the top, we do get into spoiler territory, and pretty quickly, so if you've never seen the movie and were hoping to watch it clean, well, this isn't going to help. This is someone else's movie.
1: I mentioned to you that I have a book coming out, and I was trying to, you know, be a good author and make my publisher happy by thinking, (laughs) well, can I I come up with a movie that sort of reminds me of my book so I can, you know, make all these parallels? Um, And Wait Until Dark popped into my head, and I thought, huh, it's been like, it's been over 15 years since I saw that movie. And it was the kind of thing where I was just flipping through the channels back when People watched, you know, sure, actual TV yeah. and flip through their channels um, and came across it and just, like, was so delighted, just, like, loved it. And I remember telling my friend about it the next day and making her really angry because I was sort of, like, telling her the whole movie, basically, and all the twists and turns. Like, then he gets the gasoline and he throws it at her. Um, and so she told me to shut up because, <laughs> <laughs> because she wanted to see it. Um, but I thought, you know, is is this a good choice? Because it's not like I'm this huge— Audrey Hepburn fan or anything and I've only seen it this one time so very long ago um, but then when I watched it again I was like oh yeah it's actually got all these really interesting commonalities with my book that okay. I must have been kind of subconsciously remembering and I like the um, I just like, I like the scary of it, I like the sort of thriller factor um, I love Alan Arkin in that role, I don't think I've ever seen him play a villain before in any other, you Not would probably really, know all his movies. No.
0: This was one of his earlier roles, yeah, too. Yeah, very I mean, he early. Was, he was the, the, the weird new thing from Second City, yeah. basically, when yeah. they cast him.
1: Yeah, I was looking at IMDb and I was like, oh my god, Alan Arkin wasn't even really a thing when this movie came out. And I think, I'm, I imagine this is a role that sort of catapulted him to, to
0: other roles. Yeah, it's kind of remarkable that he didn't get typecast. Yeah, like as if nothing else, just as as the hipster, whatever that is, hippie. psycho
1: beatnik. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um,
0: and yeah, Harry Rote Jr., which may or may not be his real name, and almost certainly isn't. Uh huh. But um, yeah, we'll 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 talk about the evolution of it because that is absolutely fascinating to me. But yeah, so you just stumbled on Alan Arkin menacing Audrey Hepburn and yeah. had to finish. Like, where, where were you in the film? Where did you come in?
1: I think. You know what, the other thing about remembering this movie and what grabbed me about it was that I only remembered Alan Arkin facing off against Audrey Hepburn. And I don't think that's because I just came into it when they were having their showdown. I just think it's because I was kind of so riveted by their dynamic. And the person I'm a huge fan of is Alan Arkin. Um, That uh, Yeah, so I just kind of forgot that these other two guys were part of the story. Right. But I and forgot. What was your question again? Well,
0: there isn't really. we okay. <laughs> just starting. Uh, but no. I, what What made you choose Wait Until Dark? And it sounds like that's yeah. it. It just made enough of an impression on you that it was the first thing that popped out subconsciously. When yeah. You so, so, uh, in as much as I don't want you to tell me anything spoilery, what is your book about? How do we, how do we come to this connection?
1: Well, so I guess the connection. The sort of overarching connection for me is like sort of helpless lady in her home uh, being menaced by men okay. or a man in, in the case of my book and not knowing it at first. Like thinking that she's okay when actually forces are in motion against her basically and being, and being gaslit basically to, in order to you know, give over something that, that the man wants. Okay.
0: So it is the, the premise just took root in your mind.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. And what the other thing that sort of struck me as interesting when I was watching it again was that, like my book, which is called – I should tell you the title. That would sure. be – that's a good author thing to do. Yeah,
0: we'll set it up. Don't
1: <laughs> My book, which is called uh, Watching You Without Me, is um, – it, like it all takes place in, in a house. And it's, it's the character's mother's house, basically. But it's also the house she grew up in, so it's also her house. But as the story kind of unfolds, the house and the surroundings are made to kind of feel like the enemy. Like it's, um, it's a zone of vulnerability when, you know, the, the home is supposed to be the sanctuary. Right. And that's kind of what happens to Susie in the movie, too. And, and it's because she's, she's blind, that's sort of part of what she's struggling with. But it's like you see her sort of struggling with all these domestic tasks like the garbage and the laundry and um, defrosting the icebox. And um, and then later when things are getting scary, all those things come into play again as you know part of the part of the drama. Like so she hides the doll in the in the laundry and she hides it in the garbage and uh, and then the fridge just sure. plays this huge role at the end. Um, and and there's like there's a sort of major appliance. In my book as well that takes huh. part in a, in, okay. in, a, in a big final showdown between the man and the woman. And I, I was like, wow, that's,
0: that's quite the coincidence mm-hmm. now that I look at it. So you revisited the film for this. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was the first time you'd seen it since the first time you Yeah, seen it?
1: yeah. Oh, wow. But I just remember it making such an impression. I thought, yeah, this, is, this should be what I talk about.
0: Cool. I watched it again just last night. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I have a weird relationship to it because I had it spoiled for me. Uh, in uh, like 1981, maybe uh-huh. I read Stephen King's book *Dance Macabre*, his his nonfiction history of horror and mm. literature and film, mm-hmm. and he lumped *Wait Until Dark* in it as a horror movie, which makes perfect sense because people yeah. get stabbed and there's jump scares and yeah. it's not for the faint of heart. Mm-hmm. I'm, I would love to have watched it in, in 1967 with an audience that you know thought they were going to see that nice Audrey Hepburn,
1: yeah, and,
0: <laughs> and get this, yeah, because King had said like he. He talked about he, he spoke of it very very quickly very briefly like I remember it as being half a page I really wish I'd looked it up for this but the, uh-huh. the words he wrote really resonated he said that it was about uh, let's see Audrey Hepburn plays the world's champion blind lady which now you know like once you see the movie oh that's a repeated line in the film but yep. it just sounded like he was being dismissive in, in the print so right. he's making a reference that I didn't get as a right kid.
1: that's what she I would calls have been herself like
0: twelve or thirteen uh-huh. and he said that. Um, she's the world champion blind lady and her husband has to go away to slay a dragon or something and a very bad man named Harry Road comes and bothers her. And that's <laughs> essentially it. And then he also blew the thing about the refrigerator bulb. Oh. Uh, and it's just, it's Stephen King expressing his admiration uh-huh. for, the, for the script, for the plot of the play because it, yeah. it originated on stage yeah. and saying, you know, like you and I would have, I remember this so vividly, you and I would have forgotten about this too. It's the bulb inside the refrigerator.
1: Yes, of course. And I
0: thought, yeah, okay, good stuff. Uh-huh. And then I caught up to it, I don't know, another 15 years later maybe or 20 years later in the, in uh-huh. the yeah, probably in the early 2000s. Whenever the DVD came out, I finally saw it uh-huh. and thought, oh, this is good. Like it's, it's stagey as hell. Yeah. But it needs to be. Yeah. And I remembered the fridge bulb, but it wasn't as much of a shock. I mean, I, I think apparently people gasped out loud in the theater when that happens. I can see that. Totally. But it just played. Yeah. <clears throat> me because I knew. You saw it coming. You knew it it was coming. Well, I knew. Well, the first time, I think I probably forgot it, and then when she opens the refrigerator the very first time to defrost it, Uh I just thought, oh, the light bulb. Oh,
1: the (laughs) friction. And there it it is.
0: (laughs) But you, Stephen King. Yeah. But, I mean, he wrote about it so convincingly that I think I was disappointed it wasn't scarier.
1: Yeah. In the end. Because
0: Mm -hmm. if, and I wonder if this is how it went theatrically as well in 67, if you know, because Warner Brothers marketed Uh the last eight minutes of this are going to be Laid in total darkness. Oh. We, there's a there's a trailer on the on the DVD that even or no, it's a featurette that even suggests to smokers that they not light up out of consideration. Oh, that's great! In the last few minutes, that's great. Especially I, since she's running around with stuff. matches.
1: Yeah, totally. And you can see how that would have been really impactful in a theater. I was thinking about the play too. Like the play must have been fabulous. Yeah. with all that you know, the matches coming off and on, and the fridge light at the at that key moment. Um, but yeah, in a theater, in a movie theater as well, it would it would have just been so riveting. Yeah, I can, I can imagine the audience
0: gasping at that moment. They even dimmed the exit lights. Apparently, did they yeah, to the legal limit to the yeah. legal minimum?
1: That's great, and it's such a great moment too because like the fridge is her, is her undoing, but then it's also her salvation. Like yeah. she uses it to defend herself at at the end of the story.
0: Yeah, it's. Um I really wish I'd seen it on stage. Mm, Maybe not. I I found out that I mean, I I did a little research into the history of it. I knew that the original had been staged with Lee Remick and Robert Duvall. Oh, uh, and as wrote, I thought at first that Robert Duvall would have made more sense as the cop, yeah, like as the the detective, not the sergeant, Mm -hmm. the role played by Richard Crenna in the film. But Duvall would have also been like a baby. Yeah, how old would he have been? This was after To Kill a Mockingbird, but only a few years. So you know. Early thirties?
1: I can't even at picture Robert Niro at that
0: yeah, age. Like, this would have been uh seven years no, five uh-huh. years before the Godfather. Wow. So he was young and young. smooth then. Yeah. But him as Harry wrote Master of Disguise would have been fascinating. But the the thing that I kept thinking about with the stage version, uh, watching the film version, which is directed by a James Bond guy. Mm-hmm. Terrence Young made three of the first yes. four Bond films, yes, that's Dr. Right. No For Rush With Love, and, and Thunderball. Mm-hmm. And then he, I almost want to say, took the wrong approach to this. You think? I, I just kept thinking. What would this have been like to watch from a static position on a st- at a stage and uh-huh. see everything? Uh-huh. Because the way it cuts, I mean, the close focus on Hepburn really works towards the end. Yeah, but just to watch those early scenes play out, where all three men are standing stock still and she's going about her day, mm. and watching you know watching an actress in real time, live, physically interacting with Ella and not physically interacting with all of those things and those people and those, those buttons that she does. Uh-huh. I thought, I really want to see this performed on stage. I don't know if it would be as intense. Right. Because we'd have distance. Mm -hmm. And Hepburn's facial features and her her tics and her non-expressiveness are so important to the performance in the movie.
1: Yeah, all those close-ups.
0: But, yeah, I kind of wish I'd seen it without being told where to look. Right. If that makes any sense. Right.
1: But don't you think the director would just, like, you know, why make a movie out of it? Yeah, you want to. If we do it that way. And you
0: want to showcase all the weird stuff that Arkin mm-hmm. is doing with the disguises and you want to showcase Krenna and, and Jack Weston. I mean, there's there's not a there's not a thing I can say against any of their choices. They're all really interesting. Yeah. And Hepburn's great. And I don't know. I just, I kept thinking, I really wish I was seeing this live. I'd love to see how you block it and how you stage it without yeah. being, you know, hinted at.
1: Yeah, maybe that's one of the problems. Like you, you are really aware of the play when you're watching it, and mm-hmm. you can't help but think, "Well, this must have been a great play. Like, yeah, this yeah, must yeah, have yeah. been great on stage. I would love to have seen this on stage." Yeah.
0: And I don't know how you can open it up, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they do their best. They mm-hmm. go outside the apartment and they have the opening scene in Montreal, and yeah, uh, which is uh, hilarious, adorable.
1: Yeah, now, right? <laughs> it's, oh my God, the, the airplane has an Expo
0: '67 decal <laughs> on it. I assume there was some kind of a Tax break or who knows? Yeah, it was
1: sort of startling. Of See, good old Air Canada there. And then the security is like giving her bag you to know. the guy and him going zip. Person at the check-in zip? desk. At the check-in yeah, desk. Not even, a, not even a little there. room. As she holds the doll full of heroin.
0: Yeah.
1: It's like, those were the days. Exactly.
0: <laughs> For the good old days. Yeah. And they, do they even actually say the word heroin? Because there's this whole thing with Krenna and, and Arkin saying... What's in the doll? You don't want to know. Well, now we know. They don't actually ever say it.
1: Yeah, just Lisa says it at the beginning. Oh, that's right. She says something like, oh, the problem with, the problem with smuggling heroin is dot, dot,
0: dot. That's right. They, they tell us. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then we have uh, this... The, sort of the beats of the plot are so quickly established... Mm-hmm. Uh, not necessarily the backstory of, of Hepburn losing her sight. That takes a while. Yeah. Uh, she mentions that she's recently blind to mm-hmm. all the new people who meet her. Yeah, oh, by the way. Yeah, and who are all... Again, this is one of the reasons I wish I'd seen it on stage. The amazing conceit of this thing, it's like a reverse Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. Um, his his argument was always the, you know, the bomb isn't scary if it just explodes, but if I show it to you under the table with a timer, uh-huh. you're on the edge of your seat. Uh-huh. This is... Sort of like that. And and it is based on a play by the same guy who wrote Dialing for Murder. Oh. So maybe that put it in my head as well. Right. But I kept thinking, you know, like we're watching people openly lie to someone because mm-hmm. we know the plot. We've seen it all. We've we've accompanied the wrong characters into the story. Yeah. Like they told us what they're doing and yeah. we we watched the deal go down and have all these things are in place. There's a corpse, there's this, there's that. And so then everything we're watching is people sort of smiling at each other while they lie to her in serious voices and it's just fascinating. And, and
1: wipe up their
0: fingerprints. Yeah, all the bits do. of
1: business. Yeah.
0: And we have that hint where she's clearly smarter than they think she is. Mm-hmm. She picks up that they were, swip- they were sweeping something or wiping something. But dusting, that's, I think she says.
1: That's the suspense of it, isn't it? It's yeah. just like the suspense is not, you know, the corpse falls out of the closet and it's not, oh, are these nice men actually bad men? Because we know they are. It's like, is she going to put it together?
0: And when is she going to put it yeah. together? And when she puts it
1: together, what is she actually going to do? What's yeah. going to happen?
0: And it's a fascinating visual conceit that all of the all the clues, all the evidence, the only thing that's missing is the doll, but we see everything before she does, mm-hmm. literally, like, mm-hmm. before she gets to it, before she figures it out. Yeah. And, of course, the kid has the doll because she's the most annoying child in the world. Yes, she is from the get-go. Right, but, again, it's only a red herring if you care. Like it's it's not the doll's not important. It's a MacGuffin. We yeah we know she can't find it. That's the only thing that matters. Yeah,
1: that's what matters. She doesn't know where it is. And the then, thing she does. Yeah.
0: yeah. And then it becomes a question of like, does she turn the tables? Is that ever something that actually happens, or does she just survive? That's like the uh-huh. fascinating aspects of it. When you're watching someone who, by rights, should be helpless, is presumed to be helpless, mm-hmm. and just turns out to be. Tougher than everybody else mm-hmm. in the room,
1: and actually uses the thing that makes her helpless as a kind of superpower. Yeah, in the end, like when she um, she hears the shoes squeaking, so she knows Roke Junior is actually Roke Senior, and vice versa. And then, of course, the um, just the fact that you know when she bashes all the lights, and she's like, "It's like I was remembering." I was remembering Arya Stark, in Game <laughs> of Thrones, and I was like, "These guys did it first. That's yeah. where Game of Thrones got the idea. It's the first... The first instance of somebody you know, battling in the dark because she can function in the dark yeah,
0: whereas yeah, her enemies yeah. can't. I think that's absolutely it. Stark, dark. I wonder if it was always there.
1: <laughs> Probably not. Wait until Stark.
0: Yes, exactly. I would watch that movie. <laughs> uh, also, she's short, so she'd have the height advantage. You'd just go for people's kneecaps. <laughs>
1: that's right.
0: Hiding under the kitchen island. Yep, tripping like them, that. Yeah,
1: tripping them. That whole thing.
0: I could totally get behind that. Um, and with, you have Hepburn who is somehow still a fashion plate even though she's supposed to not be capable of, of worrying about things like that there's a moment where she sort of sorts her socks or something when she's mm-hmm. putting the laundry together and she's clearly doing it by finger feel by, by texture which is just such, such a great little telling detail yeah that maybe you don't bother with that if you're on stage mm-hmm. but she clearly brought it to it she's quite a it minute detail yeah yeah and it's that great contrast of her not looking at people and looking past people producer Mel Ferrer is interviewed on the on the Warner disc and he says that you know they offered her contact lenses or dark glasses or something mm-hmm. and she said no i just I don't want any of the business I just want to I want to play it oh wow mm-hmm. um, I, again I, I don't usually rely on DVD supplements this much but I found them fascinating
1: did you just have the DVD Uh,
0: yeah, yeah oh wow it's an old snapper case too it's one of those films that really could use a, a remastering yeah it does not look great no I um, don't think so Like there's print damage. They clearly used a 35mm source print instead of an interpositive or, or negative and oh, it just, wow. it looked like it was done from an old source. Hmm. Uh, but in the supplements, there's a, there's a feature on Arkin and, and he, he talks about what Harry wrote is. I think he's the only surviving member of the cast by that point except oh. maybe the, the girl who plays Gloria. Right, um, And he said that my decision was, this guy is on every drug and they're interacting weirdly uh-huh. and he's just careening from one thing to another. Uh So what you see is him trying really hard to keep it together. And it's not working. Oh, interesting. Right? Because it doesn't read that way at all. It's just like he's got this strange vibe that he's rolling through. But the idea that he's fighting conflicting impulses or perceptions is really interesting to me. That's why Apparently that's why he has the dark glasses on.
1: To me, he just read Sociopath. Like, Mm -hmm. I just found him stone cold and like with with his weird beatnik
0: kind the of thing. <laughs>
1: way yeah. of speaking but uh and i i sort of the sunglasses played into that for me it's just like there's nothing there there's no you can't yeah. see into this guy's soul because he doesn't have one kind of thing but that but you can see how him playing being on every drug in the world and fighting you know his impulses constantly would kind of translate into that affect actually yeah like, it, rather than feeling anything, you sort of project like you're feeling nothing.
0: Yeah. And I just assume that the beatnik thing is just another skin. Like he's mm-hmm. just wearing that to fool, to, to fool whoever he's with right now. Right. It's, that's this week's disguise. Right.
1: It's just another another rote.
0: Yeah. And we never find out if that's his real name. I mean, it certainly isn't. Yeah. Right. Mrs. Roat is really Mrs. Roat, apparently. Mm-hmm. So oh. maybe I mean, Mrs. is she's really. She's identified Mrs. Rote. as Mrs. Roat. Oh, really? Uh, oh, wait. Do we actually know that? I don't think so. Yeah, no, all the information comes from the bad, bad guys. From the bad guys. There yeah. is no, which is something else that's really interesting. You know, like even Psycho has the psychiatrist at the end to tell you what happened.
1: Uh-huh. You know, like that
0: eight-minute monologue. Right, right, we don't get that. Which we don't care about when it's happening, but mm-hmm. afterwards it does help you put it together. Mm-hmm. And this is just like, nope. That's it. It's yep. over. Yeah. Um, don't
1: ask any questions because there's a lot of plot holes going on. Yeah,
0: I don't know how much of the story even <clears throat> matters. He introduces himself as Harry Rowe Junior to everybody, but yeah, there's no reason to believe it's true. Yeah. And um, and he is so bizarrely compelling uh-huh. that I now regret. Like I met him. I interviewed him when Argo came through TIFF, and I <gasps> regret not getting the chance. We we had your your standard film festival. Uh, Press opportunity, which is, I think, you have eight minutes with a living legend. Right. Please only ask questions about (laughs) the movie you just saw. I'm like, I really want to talk about literally everything. And he he was this incredibly friendly, open, you know, process guy. Mm -hmm. He wants to talk about interaction. He does it on the DVD as well, just... Well, you know, I want people who are open with me, and I want to be able to relax and be in the moment and and find the truth. And it's like, yeah, yeah, you do. <laughs> that's even you. even in this movie. Yeah, he's doing that. Like yeah. he is never he's never telling the truth for a second, except when he says, "Oh, I promise not to hurt you." I must have been crossing my fingers. Right. And you can feel the pleasure he takes in that. Yeah. And that's that's creepy.
1: Yeah, that's like, super creepy. That's like when the all the everything kind of falls away. Yeah. It's like yeah. I'm a bad guy. I'm basically the worst.
0: Yeah. It's the, it's, it's Chigger from, um, from No Country for Old Men. You meet him, you're probably dead. Oh, yeah. Just wander past him and you're, yeah, probably not going to see anybody else ever again.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: And that sense of like that pervasive menace that he carries with him, part of it is the switchblade, of course, and part Mm -hmm. of it is the, is the, the, the affect or the affectless affect. Yeah. But then you, you gradually watch like, what should have been ridiculous that improvised fight scene where uh, between Krenna, Weston and, and Arkin where oh. they turn on him and you know, <laughs> right. like swinging a camera and one of them, them Weston has the tripod and yeah, it, yeah the uh, Krenna has the chair and the, and swinging the camera case and it's clearly like it's it must have been great on stage because it's whatever's in reach Yep, and it's so Fun to watch actors figure out, you know, oh, this is a weapon in two seconds.
1: Mm-hmm. But that uh, was another thing that just made me think way too much of the play. It's like, yeah. on stage this might be good, but on film,
0: uh, I don't know. It's I know it's silly. Well, it looks like play acting. Mm-hmm. Right? Like it can't help but look silly when you're seeing it from five different angles. And there's you know, like yeah. there's time to appreciate. I think that's the other problem too. Most of the action scenes in the film would happen so quickly on stage. Like, you'd have a split second to realize what was going on if you're watching it all come together. Yeah. And here we have just enough. There's a little extra blocking and a little extra cutting. And yeah, yeah. It just gives you too much time to see the artifice.
1: Yeah, and Krenna swinging that thing just felt like it took forever. It's yeah. just like round and round and round.
0: Yeah, and it even takes a minute to stop doing
1: it, which mm-hmm. is
0: kind of, I get it. You're, you're registering that there's no threat anymore, but yeah. we're still trying to figure out what it is. What that thing was yeah. that
1: he was swinging? What was yeah. it? Do it's a know? camera in a case. Oh, it was a camera in a case.
0: So. But yeah, it's like, is that a bolo? Where did he get a bolo? I mean, that's pretty cool <laughs> if you have one, but, right. you know, it's 1967 New York. You've got to be ready for anything. <laughs> so true. <laughs> but the, um, yeah, and that general urban decay thing, the sense that this, this nice lady's house is being infected by dirty cops and beatniks. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah,
1: dirty cops and beatniks, it's yeah, true. And the then Scum of the Earth. And then Krenna, who is like, He's almost the worst because he's sort of the stand-up, all-American, broad-shouldered yeah, yeah. kind of guy. He's a charmer. Who's actually a scumbag, but he's like he's in a way he's sort of positioned as a love interest for Susie because he's just like because they're just they go together. They're just like leading man, leading lady. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: No, it's great. And his his um, his character cell is smart. Like he mm-hmm. comes in that just that again something that would have really, really landed on stage. And it works in, I mean, it kind of works in the movie. Uh, I I was bugged by it more the second viewing where uh, he's pretending to be, they use their real names, which is bizarre too. Mm, Like mm -hmm. he's Mike, but he's a friend of, he's a friend of Sam's. Mm -hmm. He claims to be a friend of Sam's uh, to the point where he brings a parcel, which she can't see. So that's clearly something he's done before. Like that's a trick he uses as part of his repertoire. But there's a moment where he says, oh, there's me in that picture. And and that's great writing. For her benefit, because, of course, a blind character couldn't say no. Uh-huh. And it instantly establishes an intimacy and a, and a knowledge and a history. And we don't get to see what he's looking at in the movie. But on stage, he would have clearly looked at something that clearly wasn't him. Yeah. And so the lack of an eyeline even then just made me think, oh, yeah, that could have been handled
1: better. Right. I mean, you
0: show us something that's completely look, – look at a picture of Hepburn. Uh-huh. You know, a bunch of those in the house. Sure. But,
1: yeah. Yeah, just something. It's not like it's
0: not wrong uh-huh. exactly, but you can just see a better way of doing it.
1: A moment like that for me, actually, was I was thinking of this when we were sort of talking about the director. Was when um, you remember when Rote cuts the phone cord? Oh yeah, and
0: uses her cane to pick it up. And
1: yeah, yeah, and Susie is sort of after everybody leaves, and she she knows what's going on. She's stumbling around, and she's like, "Oh, the phone's dead," and then she follows the cord and follows it and follows it, and then she pulls it down, and like the frayed end of it, kind of shows pops up pops into frame yeah. uh, before she actually gets hold of it and knows what's going on so it just it just felt like it would have been it would have helped me to empathize more with Susie if like we saw the freight and as she grabbed it yeah you know what i mean rather yeah. than seeing it first and then
0: yeah and especially since in the stage version there's no way that bit of business would have registered as anything other than oh he's doing something weird in the background the same way it does yeah. here mm-hmm. but it would pull focus while it's happening and so then you get the payoff yeah and instead it's just the oh that's what the court that's what the that's what he was doing that's the, what he was doing with the cane yeah. which isn't as much of a landing i don't think mm-hmm. and yet i still like this movie oh me too that's that's what i keep coming back to my general bewilderment at sitting through it and going eh, you know it's getting <laughs> better but it still <laughs> works and i'd completely forgotten about the pacing of that last jump shock mm-hmm. um to the point where like i, I watched it with kate we Watched it together, and right. both of us jumped. Yeah,
1: me too. I did happens. too, and I
0: gasped. And you knew it was coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did. But it's just this great, weird, and I think it's because it's really Arkin. Like it's not a stuntman. Yeah, it's an actor throwing himself yeah. forward
1: <laughs> across the
0: room. Yeah, basically. and I watched it again just to see the the pacing of it, and it's like I'm pretty sure he's jumping off a trampoline or some kind of springboard to get that to get that. He
1: height. got he got all that air. He
0: gets air. <laughs> it's true. But it also. It's that thing that it's the it's the Yarmin Carey, it's the it's Jason out of the out of the water on Friday the thirteenth. Mm-hmm. It's that thing where for a moment, oh, this not only is this not over, I think we're dealing with something superhuman. This is terrifying.
1: Yeah, yeah, that feeling like it's coming back. We thought it was defeated, but it's coming back. Before that became a trope, really. Yeah. Like it
0: wasn't a trope back then. It no, was- I was looking I was looking for Earliest instances, and there aren't. I think mean, there's maybe a couple of horror movies with a final sting, mm-hmm. but this is probably the first, I mean, definitely the first time it was used in a studio film, unless there's some huge thing I'm missing. Yeah, and it's freaking creepy. It's really scary. And then him like struggling forward with the knife, like digging the knife
1: into the floor as he laboriously works his way over to her. Yeah, yeah, it's very very grim. I mean,
0: there's no way you're gonna kill Audrey Hepburn. No, but. We There's know a moment where it feels like it could happen. Yeah. Because the rules are broken now. Yeah. Like, he's just not stopping. You and know, it's Halloween and it's everything else, but mm-hmm. that hadn't happened yet, as mm-hmm. you say.
1: And all she has is that refrigerator door.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. Those <laughs> fridge doors I, I, were heavy,
1: though. They were, yeah. Like, you feel like that's a pretty good shield
0: if, if you've got to pick something in a yeah. household. And we've already had before, even before he springs at her. There's that moment where she trips over Krenna's body, and we're reminded that oh yeah, there's a dead guy. Dead guy. guy. A dead <laughs> yeah. And again, I thought of the stage. Like that actor had to be there for the entire last reel. right. The last uh, the last twenty minutes of that play. Oh, that's right. And God. it's just yeah. Just lying there. So much more complicated. I would again, you know, like um, so who was somebody surprised me that oh um, so yeah, Lee Remick played Susie in mm-hmm. the original stage production with Duval as Harry wrote. And the actor who played, he says, looking it up on his phone, so <laughs> I have the page open. Uh, the actor who played uh, Mike Tallman was Mitchell Ryan, who is this big square jaw. Draw- he was he was the he's the bad guy in the first lethal weapon. Oh. Like he's he's this kind of Stacy Keach guy. Okay. Basically. Uh-huh. For those of those of you listening who don't know who Stacy <laughs> Keach is either, I can't help you. But um, yeah, just this big, big solid. Early. Brian Dennehy type mm-hmm. again another reference nobody's gonna get at this point <laughs> I'm old uh, but um, Google it yeah please Google it and then go watch uh, Lethal Weapon well the Mel Gibson of it makes it weird but still um, it but it is like it's a, as a stage play that's that's fascinating and then I found out they the, there was a restaging mm-hmm. with Marissa Tomei oh okay fun hold your approval oh <laughs> uh, because it was her and Quentin Tarantino.
1: Oh, and he was wrote?
0: He was wrote, which just does not sound like a good idea at
1: all. Oh, dude, I would watch that.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I would totally watch that. It I was, kind of love Quentin Tarantino when he acts. Yeah. He's always himself.
0: It was, yes, he would be. Yeah. It was 1998. It ran for 97 performances. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Stephen Lang, uh, who's best known, I guess, for Avatar, but who I always think of from Last Exit to Brooklyn and, and The Hard Way. Oh. Um, Again, a, a kind of a Mitchell Ryan type okay. as, as Mike. Uh-huh. Uh, Tarantino, I, I I, just, I see him trying to do his own thing as Harry wrote. Mm-hmm. And, I, and it being bad. I can't imagine it would have worked. Yeah. He's just, would he have done a beatnik thing? I mean, was it in period? I don't even know. It would have had to be. Would it? I guess. I mean, if you have a I cell guess, phone, yeah, the whole movie no, stops working. No cell
1: phones. Although that.
0: I guess if you're newly blind, you might not be able to, well, no, 98, that would have all been a hard number, mm-hmm. not iPhones.
1: But if somebody steals your cell phone, that's what happens in my book. Okay. Yep, she's like, she's got no landline, somebody takes her cell phone, and then you're basically like back in 1967. Yeah. There's like, even like, it's almost like being blind in 1967 because we can't function without our cell phones anymore. It's that's like certainly
0: like true. We just curl up into balls. Yeah, I, um, <clears throat> uh, I would not do well. No. <laughs> It would probably in the end be better for me to not have a cell phone all the time because I definitely get more work done. Yeah. I would fight with people less on – I don't fight with people on Twitter. I just ignore them now. But, um, you know,
1: it's – Definitely fewer distractions. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Like, even this morning, I had – I've been up since 5 a.m. I was writing some capsules so we could get them into our, our TIFF wrap, which will have long since come out by the time this, this drops. But I'm, you know, knowing that I have a deadline of 8 a.m. and why am I still looking at the news – Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm very easily distracted. Oh, yeah, I know. Me too. How do you write whole books?
1: I don't know how <laughs> just write whole books. I mean, I just... I use the Internet as, like, a little treat. So... And when I'm writing, I you know, I really enjoy it. It's not that... I, I don't want to be distracted from it. So, I'll, like... I'll write for three hours. Then I'll check Twitter. It's a little treat. Just to see what's going on. And maybe write a little bit more. Um... And that's basically it. I just don't push myself so hard that I'm not having fun anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah. So if I write for like three to four hours a day, more or less every day, basically at the end of a couple of years,
0: you, you have a book. Wow. I just, I'm, you can always tell when I've hit a deadline because my Twitter presence will skyrocket. <laughs> oh, yeah, if You're I've, just on Twitter constantly. Yeah, I filed something and then it's like, well, I guess I have to Comment on literally everything that I've missed in the five hours that I've been working.
1: And you must you must be able to justify it to yourself too, because it's like I'm a media guy, I'm supposed to be interacting with my readers. Sure, it's so, all brand. Yeah. This is, <laughs> this is work. It's, it's all work. It's
0: not. <laughs> it's not. It's anti work. It really is. Yeah. Like, I, I had this um I have this thing now where if you like everybody does, it's not just me. If you are at a film festival, you're expected to deliver your thoughts on a film the second it's over. Right? You gotta be first. Yeah. Uh, in the hopes that you get retweeted or you get picked up and it it somehow becomes part of the the influence that you extend Mm. or that you exert. And it's all bullshit. Like, it's all garbage. Unless I have, you know, like, uh, when I saw The Tree of Life and was basically just trying not to cry for the next half hour and I was on stage uh, doing an unexpected Q&A with Jessica Chastain, um, that's, like... I didn't have time to tweet my
1: impressions, feelings. but yeah.
0: also I would have just said, like, this is the best thing I've seen all year. Unless it's something like that, what are we adding
1: mm-hmm. really,
0: to the discourse? I mean, the whole point of, well, it used to be that the whole point of criticism was that you spent several hundred words explaining something, and yeah. you know, we don't do that anymore.
1: No. So do you, can you be a refusenick? Like, could you just not no. tweet your feelings no, after a it's movie? it's expected. I
0: mean, it's required. That's yeah. the other problem, too. Like, it's part of the, that is actually part of the part work. Part of the job, yeah. Only then. I think. And the, then, there's, then there's the whole issue of embargoes and doing something in order to respect the... You, know, you, you see it on Twitter mm-hmm. every time it happens. When the embargo is up, all of these opinions just rain down on it. Yeah. And I don't know that that helps either. Can I ask you a question? Sure. I've always wanted to ask this of a movie
1: critic. Do you ever feel like because you're just constantly absorbing stories, films, and having to produce... An, uh, an opinion on them that like, do you ever feel like your critical faculties breaking down? Like, do you feel like maybe I don't know what's good, <laughs> what's bad anymore?
0: I think, I I think I always know what works on me. Yeah. Right. So I think that's where it goes. I don't know. I've been on the opposite side of critical divides enough times to know that I no longer care if other people think I'm right. Mm-hmm. Like that's my only obligation is. Has to be to my yeah. response. Yeah. Um, that said, I know there's no point in going to see another Transformers movie. Yeah, like I'm just; those are not for me, mm-hmm. and I accept that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'm still capable of enjoying stuff. Yeah, I mean, I know I am. I, I, I really. That's like, good. Yeah, I really liked Ready or Not last week. Or
1: something. oh, good! I'm looking forward to seeing that. It's actually. a lot of fun. Nice, um,
0: and it's it's from filmmakers who've been kind of wobbly for me before. The uh-huh. Radio Silence team. They've done, uh, they did short uh, pieces of the VHS and South Band anthologies. Mm-hmm. And in neither of those films did I think they've made the strongest ones. Mm. But this one hits on something really pleasurable about watching entitled, inept people
1: mm-hmm.
0: try to be scary. Right. <laughs> uh, and Samara Weaving is just such a blast as, as a uh, sort of a. A hunted person who becomes the avenger it happened in mayhem as well this little movie that's on shutter now I oh think. yeah uh she made with um for joe lynch with uh stephen yun from the walking dead and the two of them are basically thrown together inside a building that's f- flooded by the rage virus and everybody's just gone completely insane not the rage virus no the thing about mayhem is that it's uh it's a self-aware zombie movie where oh, okay. people are just kind of energized whatever the virus is, it allows them to act on their impulses. Oh. So it's just a bunch of people running around punching each other and, and screwing each other right? and throwing the copier out the window. Oh wow. And the two of them are they kind of forced into an alliance because both of them are in equal jeopardy mm-hmm. from this situation. And she just turns out to have a real talent for smashing people's faces. Mm. And so, sounds fun. Yeah, and so now she's found another way to do that in this. Right. But also you get Christian Brune and Melanie Scrifano from Orphan Black and Women yeah. Herb as a married couple of morons uh, who are just like handed crossbows and expected to kill people. And it's just a blast.
1: And Hen- Henry, Henry Chirney.
0: Henry Cherney, Mark O'Brien. Yeah. Um,
1: so-
0: yeah, they shot it up in North Bay.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, oh, that's where it was and, shot.
0: Yeah, and it just it looks like, you know, it could be Connecticut. doesn't mm-hmm. really matter. They shot it in the summer, I guess. And, um, yeah, it's it's yeah. really silly it's really fun, and it does have a sort of no it doesn't i'm just I was about to say it kind of brings back to white until dark it doesn't really oh. this is just what i do uh, but it's a, you know it's mostly set in one place uh-huh. it's uh, and it's very cinematic
1: mm-hmm. it is it
0: is a textbook example of how to shoot a mansion in widescreen and envelop
1: oh. the, i mean
0: there's there's a hidden passage here, and there's mm-hmm. a dumb waiter there, and we always know where everybody is and there's this just this great shot of of Christian looking up something on his phone while somebody plummets from the floor above him, and it's in the trailer. Actually, it's just yeah. a static shot. It's just this motion in the back, and he remains oblivious. His face lit by the cell phone.
1: Right. That's just that's lovely.
0: That's, <laughs> that's what great. I want. And I think the fact that I can respond to that mm-hmm. at the end of a really long summer mm-hmm. uh, that that makes me believe I can still make it through the festival. I
1: think I, I had that question in my head because um, I've like I've read Roger Ebert over the years, and I, I find some of his sort of opinions so egregious, like he just like would lose his shit uh, about like completely innocuous movies that were perfectly fine or else he'd like just praise to the hilt something that was
0: was completely ridiculous. This is towards like the last 10 years, right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: And then I I read uh, a review of Wait Until Dark.
0: Um, Oh, he hated it. He
1: didn't like it. The idiot plot. I remember that. The idiot plot. That's right. And he kept going on and on about how she should have locked the door. Why didn't she just lock the door? And I'm pretty sure that Somebody messes she, with the lock yeah. at a certain point, so it, the door doesn't lock, but she, she thinks it's locking. Yeah,
0: and she does lock it once, clearly, but it doesn't help right? Mm-hmm. because the, yeah, it's the same. Of course, it's the same thing. Yeah, um, I think that the bigger his bigger problem is that it's unlocked at the beginning, which of course it is because Road unlocked it. We're we're led to understand that yeah to let the other guys in.
1: Yes, yeah, that's yeah. right. So I don't know what's he on about. <laughs> I think,
0: I suspect that. Um, well, I know that towards the end of his life. He had so many health issues. So, I, someone else put this far more eloquent mm-hmm. than I did, but it was very clear that he was just happy to be going to the movies. Like he was mm-hmm. happy to be alive and going to the movies, and so everything was happy a little was bit sweeter, great. a little bit nicer. Huh. And you can feel it in some of his stuff where he's he's not like you don't feel him straining to like a movie. Mm-hmm. I think he genuinely did, but he,
1: he always just found something to like. In yeah, whatever but he, he was seeing
0: towards the last five or six years was going way over the top. Mm-hmm. I think his mm-hmm. political writing got sharper. Yeah, that's weird. Because he became weird, more isn't it? engaged.
1: Yeah. So I guess that's because he was an aficionado. like he, As as I'm sure you are of the movies, he just started out reviewing movies because he loved movies and maybe he eventually just came back to that fundamental place.
0: I wonder. And he, I mean, I didn't know him. I knew him a little. I didn't know him really well. But he was always, well, once he got sober was when I knew him. Mm. So apparently before that, he was much more judgmental, much more temperamental, angrier. Mm. He was definitely angrier. Interesting. Uh, And I only ever knew him After that, and so he seemed like a a really he seemed like he was trying to be a good person. Like he, it Mm -hmm. it was important to him. Not Mm -hmm. that he wasn't, but that he feared he might slide. Yeah, and so maybe that's part of it too. After the health stuff started,
1: do you think it's also part, uh, partly having done it for so long and knowing so many movie people and getting an awareness of how? Like I found this as a book reviewer. I had to stop reviewing books because. Novelists work so hard. Like, they work so hard, and I don't want to be shitting on something yeah. they worked on for three years just because, you know, it's not my thing. Um, the disease of empathy. The, yeah, the, <laughs>
0: the worst kind of thing that kind of can happen to a
1: reviewer. Cut that out. Um, and I wonder if that was the case for him after after so many years of working in that, in that field. Maybe.
0: I mean, I, I wonder, too, because I don't think I'm any less demanding mm-hmm. of movies as I see them now. Mm-hmm. But I also know that I'm less likely to see the stuff that's going to really piss me off. Yeah. And maybe that's it. You just become self-selecting you know as a what form to avoid. of survival. Yeah. And, I'm, and you know, I've been at now since 2008, and we have a team before when it was just me freelancing. I saw everything because that's the best way to get the most money, mm-hmm. you know, write the most reviews. And I was pretty much the only person writing for Metro for three or four years. I was the film department. Yeah. And so you saw everything. And then once you get the position of being supported – Suddenly, you don't have to see 12 movies. You can pick which six.
1: And you, you don't resent them as much, I imagine. When you do see something you don't like. Well,
0: no, I'm yeah, still mad still when my time it. is wasted. <laughs> there was a, I remember being so pissed off at, oh, The Aftermath, mm-hmm. uh, which stars, it's, it's, a, it's a Fox Searchlight production. This actually works out nicely because having just praise Ready or Not, I can knock another one of their pictures <laughs> just for balance. Yeah. Um, it stars Kieran Knightley and Alexander Skarsgård and, oh, um, Jason Clarke. Mm. And it's a post-war uh, denazification drama and it just, it was so milquetoast about mm. everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a film about Nazi dead-enders in 1945 and it doesn't have the, it just doesn't have the the strength to make the architect, the, the, the German architect for whom Knightley falls when she's um, uh, when she's placed, her husband is uh, takes over his house, and so uh, Jason Clark and Keira Knightley are living in this German architect's house, and he and his daughter are, are up in the in the uh, in the attic. That's where they can stay, and it's a nice it's, it's you know it's a nice arrangement for everyone. But of mm-hmm. course, Keira Knightley and Alexander Skarsgard are gonna bone because yep. they're the prettiest people in the movie, mm-hmm. and it's just everything about it is an inevitability. And then the movie doesn't even have the the guts to make him a former Nazi. But there's this whole thing about how he never joined the party and he never did anything. He he was a conscientious objector, which is fine. I'm sure that's probably true of a lot of German Mm -hmm. people who survived the war. But in this case, the whole point of this is that it's about former enemies finding common ground. And so why not just have him be a member of the party? Most Germans were.
1: That's complicated and interesting. Yeah,
0: and they don't want that. Um, So I remember just there's a little speech about that very early on. Oh, Father, we all know. And it just oh, that's what kind of movie this is. It's just, this is going to be the least interesting, mm. most vanilla version of the story that I've already seen a dozen times. And why am I here? Like, that, that's the thing I'm feeling more often now. These movies yeah. don't need me. Right. But I won't walk out because I'm an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I stayed for the whole thing.
1: Well, you must feel like you have to. Like you have I to do, yeah. Like I mean, I think the the job
0: the least I, literally the least I can do is stay still. Mm-hmm. Like, sit for the whole thing. <laughs> Even if I know, and most of us do know, Ten minutes in, you know, critics That's and true. non-critics. If we're not going to like this thing, yeah. Um, Same with
1: books, yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: But we we power through out of a sense of obligation or honor. Or, I mean, I really, uh, I envy the people who can just get up and leave. <laughs> sometimes,
1: <laughs> I know it's it's a superpower.
0: Yeah, it really is. Um, but but then you come back to stuff that kind of works and pulls you in like wait until dark is a movie i was happy to watch all the way through again even though Mm -hmm. it is slow and a little clunky and very stagey Mm -hmm. i still you know in the middle of all this tiff stuff i could still take pleasure in a pulp film from 50 years ago
1: well it's so much fun to just watch the the choreography of it like the just the dance of the men coming in and and the back and forth of the the blinds how they're signaling with the blinds and Cleaning up their fingerprints as they go, and sort of exchanging looks as they as they try to con
0: yeah, um, Susie, all while maintaining serious voices, mm-hmm. that was the thing that I really loved watching close up I think if you need to if you need to see this as a film that 's why uh-huh. to watch the lying, uh-huh. like just how blithely everyone is. You know, well, and then just glancing at each other while, while intoning these very serious police words. Yeah. And just sort of smirking or, or twitching. Mm-hmm. All the stuff you're never supposed to do as an actor, right? Like, all the stuff you're—they're bad actors. Right. <laughs> because they're not—like, the, the characters are terrible actors. Yeah. Because they're take, they're not taking her seriously because she can't see them. Yeah. And that right. must have been immensely pleasurable on stage. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Like, that just— yeah, sorry.
0: <laughs> no, but it works in uh it works in the movie too. Mm-hmm. It's it's the one thing that is I think the 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 advantage of cinema is that you can get right up close. And you you get those wonderful frames of, of Hepburn lighting a match into the darkness into camera, where we are pretty sure there's nothing behind her, but there might be and mm-hmm. like you tense up even though you know that nothing's gonna happen the second time through. It's uh yeah, there's something elemental and primal about those scenes that I mean, obviously, it's the reason the film works. Mm-hmm. No one would remember it if it didn't have that eight minutes. What
1: What did you think, just sort of speaking of staginess, what did you think of Harry Rote's
0: dis- disguises? Oh, they're ridiculous. <laughs> I think they would have worked a lot better yeah. um, on stage, right, mm-hmm. where you can't mm-hmm. see them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, that's another thing. Like, Quentin Tarantino can't not look like Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. How do you even disguise that jaw? Yeah. I guess beards or something. But, but it would be so obvious and apparently on stage it wasn't mm-hmm. when Duval came back in oh. with the disguises. Oh really? Yeah. Or not people didn't realize
1: he was disguised? I I maybe not.
0: Oh. I mean people talked about it at the time anyway. Uh, or Alan Alan Arkin is clearly having fun. Yes, like that's he's doing voices. Yeah, <laughs> Rode is enjoying himself. Yeah, and we are too. Mm-hmm. So it's fine. And mm-hmm. also, it's completely unnecessary because she can't She's see him. He's
1: blind. Yeah. I know. And I tried to. I tried to give them the benefit of the doubt because I was like, okay, Gloria actually sees Rode Senior. Yeah, I can't remember if she sees Rode Junior. But she. D- I don't definitely know that he
0: ever does. She ever does? No, yeah. I don't think they're in the room at the same time.
1: So it's like, okay, maybe they're worried that he might run into, you know, somebody other than Susie and have to
0: be this character.
1: Yeah. but then, mean, It is
0: an apartment building in New York. It could happen. Yes. Although it's a depopulated New York pretty much as we see it. We don't get any sense that other than those kids on the stoop early on, mm-hmm. there's no sense that anybody else is out there.
1: No. And like you can send Gloria down to the Port Authority and she's like yeah.
0: 12 and it's night.
1: <laughs> and yeah, it's like, true. oh,
0: apparently it's safe
1: for her to do that.
0: The whole urban blight thing doesn't apply to small—well, you know, honor, right? No, no criminal yeah. is going to pick on a baby. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You're fine. You can
1: go. New York was good
0: that yeah. way. even Jack case. Weston lets her go by. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's true. That weird speech about the Girl Scout cookies, which I assume happened in voiceover. You could hear it because the, it, the whole point oh. of it is that she rattles the stick against the fence so Susie knows she's leaving.
1: Oh, right, right.
0: Um, but, yeah—, yeah. The the disguises I think uh, maybe it's just because he loves it maybe it's a distraction yeah maybe whatever he's on is kicked into the point is like yeah you know what a mustache would be a great idea
1: <laughs> and some some wigs and some like he he just was like full full hair and makeup yeah
0: and the point too that he gets like and Alan Arkin and Alan Arkin and Alan Arkin in the credits so you see oh three my different God. faces just that in was case hilarious. the audience didn't
1: know yeah <laughs> it's like the audience is gonna be. Wait a minute! Alan Arkin played all those characters. That's Inspector Clouseau. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that was hilarious. Yeah, it's just it is a it's a weird, outdated, somehow still good movie. Mm-hmm. Like it has dated horribly. Yeah, on almost every level, but it doesn't matter, mm-hmm. which I think is kind of great. Mm-hmm.
1: And it's, I mean, in a way, for me, the the datedness of it is part of the pleasure. Like there's Audrey Hepburn's terrible ensemble that she's oh, that's right. wearing yeah. at the beginning and it like reminded me so much of you know stuff my parents dressed me in <laughs> in the 70s and uh the you know lisa's insanely big hair like yeah. there's just all these wonderful 60s touches that i really enjoyed
0: yeah i the thing i kept thinking of is like clute is right around the corner oh uh, yeah and it's going to obliterate this sort of movie
1: right because that's
0: a character study detective movie it doesn't have a gimmick it's just I mean it's almost experimental in some of the ways it handles the bad guy mm-hmm. and you just see this This film is like the last it's not the last gasp exactly but it is the last wave of that sort of studio filmmaking that's where,
1: a really good point yeah because yeah. like this whole 70s realism is right around the corner yeah. isn't it
0: yeah, I mean, they shot in New York, so it's technically part of it, but it really isn't. I no. mean, like that's a soundstage. There's mm-hmm. no like, there's no fooling anybody. Mm-hmm. What sort of film this is, and even even Hepburn's acting style is about to go out of vogue.
1: And her, she's got that patrician mid-Atlantic, mid-Atlantic accent yeah. that people did.
0: Yeah, which is like, it is the Audrey Hepburn accent, right? Like, yeah. she couldn't fake it, there's no reason to do anything else. Mm-hmm. She's great at what she does, mm-hmm. but it's about to be over.
1: Yeah, and it feel, that feels really dated, like even in that context, yeah. in that movie. Well,
0: I wonder if it's the collision of, of her and Arkin, because yeah. he is so modern. Yeah. Like, he is basically he's a method a actor, even though, yeah, though of course, mm-hmm. literally. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's basically a method actor, even though he's not, I don't think he would call himself that, but that's uh-huh. certainly how his process works. Like uh-huh. He's in the moment and doing whatever it takes. Yeah. And she's apparently she was. he speaks very highly of all the actors and she said she was willing to do whatever you know, like in, a, in a moment in a scene that she was a great scene partner.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: I kind of wish there were dailies because I'd love to see how they just negotiated that stuff. There must yeah. have been moments where one or the other of them didn't hit the right tone and they're finding this weird new ground together. Mm-hmm. And then it all goes away in the end because it's just pure physical like action.
1: Maybe that's part of why I only remember them. Like there was that great dynamic going on between the two of them, and they were so opposed in some ways. But maybe that's what made their their scenes together just crackle the way they did.
0: Yeah, no, the chemistry is amazing. I mean, it's anti chemistry, but still, Mm -hmm. he's toying with her, and then in the end, she gets to toy with him. Yeah, and yeah,
1: yeah, it's so satisfying. Bites back, Yeah, yeah,
0: really good. So, without talking about the ending of your. Book. I mean, we've we've already pretty much discussed the influences and the 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 back and forth, but Mm -hmm. the you know the idea of inspiration being subconscious and sort of bubbling along. Did you realize how much you were drawing on it subconsciously while you were writing this, or not at all? No, no, I wasn't. I didn't like literally
1: wait until dark. Did not occur to me until I was talking to you and thinking about movies. Oh wow! Um, But thinking about it now was just like I mean, just that that appliance thing that I was telling you yeah, about yeah, that yeah. the two stories had in common. But I think like maybe there's I don't know, like I was wondering if there was any way for that movie to have had some kind of latent feminist influence because it's if it just feels like it's telling a story of, you know, as I was saying, female helplessness, there's this sense that and this is the same with my book too, that the sort of temptation women have to rely on the kindness of strangers, mm-hmm. basically. And that it's it's like the seductive temptation to kind of let a man come into your home and, and look after things. If there's a crisis, and this is what happens to Susie, right? There's a crisis. She doesn't know it's manufactured, but, oh, this nice man, Mike, who's a friend of her husband, is here to, to make everything better. Right, and, and he's and,
0: vouched for in the world of the film because he knows or he claims to know he her husband. He claims to know her husband,
1: yeah. And... um it's a similar thing in my book and it just feels like the message of the movie is don't do that, lady. <laughs> you have to be self-sufficient because that's what that's what sort of Susie's kind of philosophical arc is. It's like she doesn't she's mad that she has to be the championship blind lady that Sam won't coddle her that she has to, you know, go to blind school and she's got to figure out how to do everything and nobody will help her. Like she has to do everything herself and yeah. it's like, Oh, that makes me so mad. Um, And then at the end of the movie, she realizes that, you know, blindness is in some ways her superpower. She is self-sufficient. Like, she saved herself, basically. Yeah. Um, With the fridge. With the 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 help of an appliance, like in my book. (laughs) In my book, the appliance is the dishwasher.
0: The dishwasher
1: steps in to help
0: at a key moment. Is it okay to tell people that? Should we cut this?
1: No, no. I think we can... That's all I'll say though.
0: Oh see, so now I, I want to know what the dishwasher does.
1: Of course, see? You're gonna run out and buy the book.
0: Camera. Right. <laughs> My thanks to Lynn Cody, whose new novel, Watching You Without Me, arrives in stores and on ebook platforms today. I can't wait to read it. I really want to know what the dishwasher does. You can find Lynn on Twitter at Lynn underscore Cody, and you can find Wait Until Dark on DVD from Warner Home Video and in a more recent Blu-ray restoration from Warner Archive. It's also available on iTunes at Google Play. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm wilner and elsewhere on the internet at nowtoronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. If you feel like leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you enjoy the show, that would be greatly appreciated. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network. They're pretty good. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening. See you next week. you